Ian Dell, a very warm welcome to 20 Questions With. It's brilliant to have you on the podcast. You are, of course, yourself a master podcaster. You are a broadcaster. You are an LBC radio host. You are a columnist. You're a writer. You were a publisher. You were a Conservative Party candidate. I've got no idea how you fit all of this stuff in. And that's going to be one of the questions I ask, but not <laughs> yet. Not yet. Okay. My first question is, because I know you have lots of interests and passions, and I know you work incredibly hard, as I've intimated, but what makes you happy? Doing nothing, which I know sounds a, a very trite answer, but I, I I was in bed about, I don't know, three or four months ago, and I was just thinking to myself, you know, you've lost the art of doing nothing because you're, even if you're watching television, you've got your laptop on, on your lap, sort of typing away, answering emails, doing whatever. And I just thought, you know what, I don't have really any downtime and one of the great things and we were recording this in early January one of the great things over Christmas was I had 17 days off and I think I rediscovered the art of doing nothing or just binging on a Netflix series or just sort of playing with the dogs that sort of thing and of course now Christmas is over you get back into your former life and because of the hours that I work I don't get home until about 10 past 11 in the evening and I go to bed I don't know sort of midnight half past midnight so I don't have any real downtime then so that doing nothing makes me happy owning dogs makes me happy um it's a very sad situation at the moment I've got one of my one of my dogs is terminally ill so you sort of constantly think about what's about to happen um but dogs have always sort of been part of my life and um it's when you when you get a dog you kind of know that they their shelf life is not as long as a human shelf life but that's part of the deal but it doesn't make it any less painful and sort of football makes me happy I suppose I go to most West Ham games I I used to play a bit but um don't can't do that anymore and I still actually I used to love playing most sports but as you get older as you're about to find out Matt um the time catches up with you and you just can't do it. I I used to be a really good tennis player or moderately good anyway um but I hadn't played for about 20 years and I played a friend of mine this is about three or four years ago now so I was 57 he was 27 and I thought this is not going to end well and of course you don't allow for the time intervening. So I was going for shots that 20 years ago I'd have easily got. And I kept fall, I kept falling over. It was really embarrassing. And once I'd sort of hit my face on the on the tennis court. But having said that, I did win six love, six love. <laughs> so purely because I because I'm tall and got a long reach, I've got a very good serve, and my my friend couldn't serve at all. So uh, I was quite proud of that. I don't quite know what to pick up from in that answer. There's so, there are so many strands. And one of them, though, is that you claim to have had 17 days off over the Christmas period. I presume you mean from LBC, but you weren't yeah. off, off. I mean, you were editing a book that's coming out this year to which I contributed, Kings and Queens of England. Yeah. I've, you see, a lot of my work... I don't regard as work. In fact, very little of my work I regard as work. Uh, even my main job, I don't really regard as work because to me, it's a pleasure. And I I regard myself as incredibly lucky that I do things that I love doing. And so many people I know do not do that, um, that they have a job to earn money to earn a living. Now, okay, I do that too. But it's very rare that I come home from a day's work or, or a radio show 
thinking, God, that was boring, or I really didn't enjoy any of that at all. Although having said that, last night I came home after having done an hour on Harry and Meghan, and I must admit I didn't enjoy that at all. But generally, I really enjoy what I do. So editing the book, which you've contributed to, Kings and Queens, do I regard that as work? No, because I, I wouldn't do it if I did, I don't, I don't think. Certainly not doing nothing, though, Ian. I, I, I want to ask you about the LBC show and give us a sense, roughly, I mean, I've been an LBC presenter myself, but give us a sense of how you go about doing that show. Just for regular listeners, for people who maybe don't yet listen, although I can't imagine there are many of them, Ian, but give people a sense of how you prepare for it, how you actually do it, and how you wrap it up. Well, it's changed over the years. When I first started doing the show in 2010, I was a relative newbie. I wasn't a trained broadcaster. I wasn't a trained journalist. I'd spent most of my working life in the political world in some form or other, either sort of publishing, uh, writer, journalist, whatever. But I hadn't, and I'd done a lot of broadcasting, but as a pundit and commentator, not often as a presenter. So I was very keen to ensure that I did the best that I could so I did a hell of a lot of preparation before each show I'd go in usually three hours before the show started now that has changed over the years because it took me I think probably three or four years to get to the point where I think I can do this and I'm actually reasonably good at it and I when I won Radio Presenter of the Year in 2013, which was only what, three years after I started, that really gave me a huge boost because I thought, well, I must be doing something right. And I remember um, part of the job is not just doing phone-ins, but uh, reacting to breaking news. And I remember in, on May the 22nd, 2013, uh, Lee Rigby was murdered in Woolwich. And I, I could talk for hours about that programme, but I was on air for four hours and it was a rolling news programme, and it happened just before I went on air. And we got an eyewitness who happened to follow me on Twitter and came onto the programme at the beginning and told me in very graphic detail what had happened. And, of course, that when, when you have somebody describing things in graphic detail at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you have to be careful of Ofcom rules because there are rules on how graphic you can be because there are obviously parents with children in the car. Uh, I took the decision that I was going to let him be as graphic as he wanted because I thought people need to know how brutal this was and at the end of that four hours I remember I actually rem remember having this thought on the train home and I thought to myself this is the day that I know that I can do this job uh, and, and I was really proud of that program because it, it's a some radio some new presenters who like me haven't got the training go to pieces on breaking news. Now, I remember that happening once. Um, I won't go into who it was or the detail, but you have to be able to do it. And that's why sometimes when celebrities come into speech radio, they, they kind of think that it's the junior party to television, but they soon realise that if there's a breaking news story, they are the ones that are communicating what, what happens to the whole country. And you, sometimes you have very little information to go on. You just know something has happened. You can't speculate wildly because it would be totally irresponsible. But you've got to keep people listening. And you can't do that just by keep repeating what's happened. You've got to think of ways to uh, make it interesting. And over the years, I, I've worked out that I can do that. It sounds horrible to say that you want to be on air when there's a terror attack. But I do because 
I, that's when I sort of come into my own, when there is a breaking news story, I think. And it, it, I don't know whether it's the adrenaline that, that does it, but there's there's something that and I, I genuinely can't think. And I, I've been on there quite a lot of big breaking news stories. I mean, election night, I suppose, is the ultimate one, where I sit there at 10 o'clock, not having a clue what the exit poll is, and looking at the television screen like the rest of the country and then well it was david dimbleby now hugh edwards they you just see the graphics come up and i instantly have to give a reaction to that and that that really does test you and i love being tested i don't like doing lazy radio and what what i mean by that is if you if you want to have a lazy day, you just pick a subject that you know is going to get a lot of phone calls right from the off. So you discuss immigration, benefits, abortion, homosexuality, climate change. Um, I like to challenge my audience. I like to challenge myself. Uh, and there are some subjects where you don't need to have dozens of calls. You only need four or five in an hour, but they have to be really good ones. And so sort of emotional subjects where people have got stories to tell. That's what really gives me job satisfaction. And you've sort of become known by some anyway, as having real empathy on air. And you're quite prepared to cry. And you've cried more than more than once. <laughs> be, be, being, and now you're laughing, but being open to the suffering of others and be, trying to be understanding of it, being empathetic. How important a part of what you do is that? Because there'll be some who see talk radio as sort of you know a, a fight a lot of the time, contrasting opinions, trying to win, trying to, trying to win the debate or the conversation. But empathy, I felt when I was doing it, is important, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think I've suffered because people see me as somebody on the right, therefore I must be very hard-nosed, and therefore I haven't got a caring bone in my body. And I, I've never really bought into that kind of stereotype. Yes, there are people on the right who would fall into that, just as there are people on the left who would. And I think some of the most compassionate people I know would be described as sort of quite right-wing conservatives. But over the years, and I didn't expect to do a lot of these kind of phone-ins when I first started. Um, but on the first night, I think we did one on assisted dying, which is quite a challenging one to do on your first show. And we also did one on the fact that the Advertising Standards Authority had said that Channel 4 were allowed to broadcast abortion clinic adverts. Murray Stopes, I think it was. But instead of getting people phoning in on that subject, I got a lot of women phoning in telling me about being raped and afterwards i remember saying to the guy who was the boss at the time saying well, that that was really weird why why do you think that happened and he said because you haven't got a threatening voice you listen um they know that you're not going to argue with them you're there to listen and you just sort of they can feel empathy so i i have i've deliberately capitalized on that but i know when i do these subjects and particularly on mental health um, I'm not there to be a counsellor. I'm not a trained counsellor, but I know that I can do that if I need to. And that was particularly important during COVID, where you would get all sorts of different people ringing you up with different mental health issues. And um, again, I, I get quite a kick out of that because I know that I can, it sounds trying, but help people. I know there are three people alive today who wouldn't be alive had they not phoned into my radio show. I mean, that... that just on its own forget anything else i mean that is quite something to to know that you have contributed to the fact that they haven't taken their own lives 
Tell me about how you deal with division, Ian, because there are issues that have divided society and there will always be issues that divide society. One of the most obvious in relatively recent times, oh, it's still going on, of course, it's still working its, its way through, working its way out. But one of the most obvious is, is Brexit. And that became incredibly toxic, didn't it, for a while. And so many phone-ins on LBC and mm. no doubt elsewhere were dominated by it. You voted leave. And I wonder how you managed to curate conversations around something that was so challenging in, in, its, in, in the way it divided us. Well, I did find it a challenge, and I still do, because on the odd occasion, I will still do the odd Brexit phone-in and then usually live to regret it, because it just descends back into the same tired odd arguments we were having in 2016, 2017, 2018. I don't enjoy Brexit phone-ins. Um, I, I didn't, contrary to what most people think, I didn't actually declare how I was going to vote until after the referendum. I didn't campaign for Brexit. Uh, I, I thought it would be wrong to do so because I was interviewing people from both sides of the argument. Now, I suspect, looking back, if you'd looked at my Twitter feed at the time, you would have probably drawn the conclusion that I was going to vote leave. But I didn't decide to vote leave until the February of 2016, when Cameron didn't really do a proper deal with the EU. I just thought the EU is never going to change. I think in the long term, we would be better off out. Now, where I've what I've tried to do, and I think often failed to do, if I'm honest, is to because I I think if you're putting forward a point of view, a strong point of view, and obviously if you are putting forward a leave point of view or or remain point of view, you have to try to understand the other side of the argument. And too often in our public discourse now, people don't even attempt to understand why the other person is arguing what they're arguing. And I think if you don't try to do that, it's quite difficult to win the argument yourself. So um, I could easily, we could do one of those school debates now where we did a role reversal, where we could spend the next half an hour with you arguing for Brexit and me arguing for Remain, because I do understand the arguments that, that were put forward for remaining. But as time went on and it became clear that all sorts of different interests were trying to thwart what I regarded as a democratic vote, I think my opinions hardened and the way I expressed them hardened, possibly too much. And I, as I say, that was not a period, even though from a journalistic point of view, from a news point of view, it was fantastic. Because bear in mind, in 2018, when really this, the, the, the height of all the Brexit debates were, were starting, and even though we decided to leave, obviously there's all those sort of parliamentary shenanigans and negotiations with the EU. I, I got taken off drive and put back to the evenings, which, I mean, I don't know if you'll talk about that later, but in, in the end turned out to be a blessing in disguise for me. I didn't regard it as that at the time, I can assure you. But virtually all the breaking news happened in the evenings because all the votes happened in the evening. So I was down on College Green at the centre of the action, which I, if I'd still been doing drive, I wouldn't be. I'm not going to put the fact that we Brexited on your shoulders alone, Ian, because you wanted <laughs> over 17 million people who voted for Brexit. But I'm just curious to know whether at any point since you cast your vote, you've had second thoughts, whether you've had buyer's remorse, whether you've had any regrets. Have you at any point thought, actually, if I had my chance again, I'd do it differently? No, not to that extent. Um, I'm not going to make any pretense that it's worked out well so far. Um, I, I think you, you'd have to be um, possess the sophistry of Peter Mandelson times three to pretend that everything has gone well. But I think it depends on what your reasons were for voting to leave. And I did not vote to leave to become richer. 
I did not vote to leave because I necessarily thought the country would become richer, certainly not in the short term. I didn't vote to leave because I thought it would reduce immigration. It was purely a case of self-government sovereignty. Well, I wouldn't say purely, but mostly. Could it have been done differently? I guess it could. I mean, I would not have been, uh, I wasn't one of the sort of no-dealer Brexiteers. I mean, if if it had come to no deal, well, I wouldn't have shed too many tears because we I thought we had to respect the the vote but had we um well, this is why I have to, I find it really difficult because because I didn't vote on immigration points of view freedom of movement was never a great issue for me I know it was for for some people but it, it wasn't for me and I probably could have stomached some sort of deal with some association with the single market so I I wasn't be I wasn't absolutist on the whole thing. I think there were many people who spent decades fighting to leave the EU who would have found that completely unpalatable, but, but I, I wasn't one of them. So there are times when I do sort of think, well, I wonder how different it would be had we not left. But if you sort of nail my hands to the sort of voting paper, I, I would, if there was another referendum now, I'm pretty sure that I would still vote to remain out. Why do you think it isn't going well so far? In what way is it not going well so far? Well, you look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, for one thing. I mean, that that is something that ought to have been fixed by now. And there are all sorts of different reasons as to why it hasn't been. But one uh, one reason has been the bloody-minded attitude of the EU. Remember, um, what was the name? The Beast of Berlin, I can't even remember his name now, so it shows how time moves on. Um, Juncker's sort of chief of staff, when he said, well, Northern Ireland is the price the Brits will have to pay for Brexit, and boy, was he right. Um, and, and I think that attitude still prevails within too many parts of the European Commission. I think sense is about to prevail, and I think the Irish government, the remarks of Leo Varadkar this week, um, I think, indicate that there is a, a, a slight change in mindset. I think the fact that we have Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister now, not Liz Truss or Boris Johnson, that ought to indicate that there, there will be a little bit more flexibility. But, I mean, no one could pretend that that has worked out well. I mean, you can play with statistics all you like and say, well, the economy is 4% smaller than it would have been had we not left the EU. I mean, how on earth you work that out, I don't know, but that's what economists are paid to do, I suppose. Um, but that is portrayed as if the economy has contracted since we left the EU, which, of course, is not the case. The economy is still bigger, it, but the th- theory goes it would have been bigger had we remained. And you, you can see the logic of that argument in some ways. Um, and I think there are some sectors of the economy that have had real problems in terms of exporting, importing, um, and again, the, the bureaucracy has become something that it, it needn't have had there been goodwill on both sides, but there wasn't. When you interview a, a huge figure, a big name, a prime minister, let's say, how do you go about it? Talk us through the skill of getting a quote, a, a headline out of an interview without being aggressive. Well, I think this is different for different people and that everybody has a different approach. And my approach is very different from most other political interviewers because I try to, if I if I know that I've got a reasonable amount of time with somebody, whether it's a prime minister or whether it's just an MP or whoever, um, that there is no pressure on you to get the news line in the first five minutes. And I remember doing an interview with Theresa May in Downing Street. Um, when would this have been? Probably sometime in early 20, I think it was July 2017, 
And Tom Swarbrick, my colleague at LBC, was head of broadcasting then, and he was adamant that I had eight minutes. And it was a bit of willy-waving, frankly. And he he knew, and I knew, that I wouldn't stay, stick to eight minutes. And I think I went to 12 in the end. I mean, big deal in some ways. But I knew... Because I was I was there to interview about actually I can't even remember what the subject was but it, it was some announcement that they'd made on something fairly boring, so obviously I I thought well I'm never going to get a news line out of that so it's got it's got to come from something else and I remember walking up Downing Street afterwards with my producers Jaguti and Victoria saying well I I got nothing out of that absolutely nothing, and Jaguti said are you mad you've got four news lines out of that interview and I've always been terrible at working out if I have got a news line. But then the next year I interviewed Theresa May for 40 minutes. She came in to do a phone-in. And when you say, how do you prepare? The answer is very little, which I know sounds terrible. It almost sounds lazy when you say that. But I know that if I get my producer or if I write a list of 20 questions, I will ask those questions. I mean, I don't know how you do these podcasts, how much of it is spontaneous and how much you you prepare the questions. But if I prepare the questions, I will then ask those questions. And it then becomes really not a conversation. So um, generally, I will have probably five bullet points in front of me of subject areas that I want to cover. But I will have thought about them in advance and I will have questions, I suppose, in my subconscious. And that works for me. Andrew Marr does it very differently. He war games interviews with his producers. They pretend to be the prime minister or the MP and he puts a question to them and they answer it. And if they so then they, if if they answer in a particular way, he has a question B lined up. And if he, they answer a different way, he has question C lined up. Well, my brain doesn't work like that. And it works for him, but it doesn't work for me. So I don't think you can say to anybody or if there's anybody aspirant political interviewers listening to this, there is no right and wrong way to prepare for an interview. You have to do it to make it work for you. But you're right about the pressure to deliver news lines. And that, that's why, in a way, a lot of our interviews where we are doing, if we're doing newsy programs, where you're doing five, seven minute interviews, sometimes three minute interviews, you've got the producer or editor of the program shouting in your ear that you haven't got anything out of this yet, get a, get a news line out of them. And it becomes a battle between you and the politician. And it's a very sterile battle because the politician is determined to only say what they came to say. And it, you can't, you cannot deliver news lines from every single interview you do if you regard your only job as getting a news line. Often the news lines come accidentally. I mean, I found if I do a half hour interview, often the news line comes in minute 27. Don't know why, it just, just often happens like that. It's partly because I think if you have some, someone for more than 10 or 15 minutes, uh, they they get rid of the sound bites in the first 10 minutes and then they start to say something interesting which they haven't prepared in advance you do a lot of tv in so you're a pundit on well, i GMB. don't actually well you do quite a bit you're a pundit on gmb aren't you? you've been a pundit on jeremy vine i'm just curious to know the differences that you find between doing television and doing radio clearly when you're doing your lbc show you're in charge you're the presenter it's your show and mostly when you're on tv you're someone else's guest but tell us a little bit about how you experience them those two media differently i've never enjoyed television in the way that i enjoy radio i've never wanted to be a television presenter i mean if if good morning britain came along and said it would love you to be the new piers morgan would i say no of course i wouldn't 
but it, I don't think television gives you the opportunity to dig into subjects in the depth that radio does. Um, I've I've actually cut down a lot on the television that I do, and I say no to an awful lot of things now, and just decide to do only the programmes that I really enjoy doing. And I do enjoy Good Morning Britain because you we're on for forty minutes, and we get a good chance to say stuff. And we like the presenters. I mean, we're generally on Jackie Smith and I sort of double act. We're on with Ben Shepherd and Kate Garraway most of the time. And we all get on like a house on fire. And I think the, the viewers like that. The Jeremy Vine show, I think, is slightly different. Where, um, I mean, that programme is in some ways designed for the panellists to have a row, which is not really my shtick. Um and I, I, I do have to resist the temptation sometimes to, if, if there's a guest that Jeremy's interviewing, I have to stop myself from intervening and wanting to, because if 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 he isn't asking the question that I would ask, then I, then I think, well, I'm going to ask it. But you have to, you have to respect the fact that you are not the host of the programme. Um, and I do, I do find that a challenge sometimes. How much fun do you have doing your podcasts? So you do For the Many with Jackie Smith, and you also do All Talk, Ian Dale All Talk. And, and the latter is basically interviews, isn't it? You've interviewed, yeah. well, I think, did you interview me for that or did you interview me for your No, your that, was for the, that was for the Book Club podcast, but we're actually rolling that into All Talk now. You're rolling um, it I mean, I, in theory, I do six podcasts, but that's because Book Club is being rolled into all talk. That's been reduced to five. Um, but one is for cross-question and one is for the whole show. So that, that I don't really count those. But the two main ones are For the Many, which I do every week with Jackie Smith, and the All Talk, um, which came out of my Edinburgh Fringe show because we called that Eardale All Talk. And in, in the end, I thought, well, I've done these 24 interviews on stage. Why don't we put them out as podcasts? And it just sort of developed from there. And so just and, to return to the thrust of the question, how much fun do you have and how different is it do you find from broadcasting on lbc broadcasting on the radio do you bring something different to it do you do you approach it differently or is it all just being ian dale well on the all talk one i don't approach the interviews differently uh, they are probably more conversational than they would be if it was live on the radio um and they range in length from half an hour to two hours. I think I, the longest one I've done actually, I think was with Neil Kinnock, which was two hours, 10 minutes, never intended it to be, but I was, that's the great thing about podcasts in that they can go on for as long as you like. And I've never had a single complaint about the length of a podcast. Sometimes people think they're too short and I don't see the point in having an arbitrary length for a podcast. It's not a radio program. And I think that's the problem that a lot of podcasters have. They're trying to make a radio show. And it's not a radio show and and it shouldn't be. It should be, I mean, I don't think I'm different in personality on a podcast to my radio show, but I can I can let myself go a bit. I mean, you can swear for once, for, for one thing. Um, you, you can be slightly more inappropriate. I mean, there are still limits, but you're not regulated by Ofcom. So on For The Many, I mean, Jackie and I, F and Jeff all the time. And um, we've we've never had an issue with that. And I'm sure some people, sometimes we probably go over the top in telling smutty jokes and sort of being inappropriate. But it's created, particularly over COVID, it, it, For The Many is a bit of a club, I, I, I think, and the people either get it or they don't. It's like listening, or the, what we try to do is make it, so it's like listening to two people down the pub on a Sunday night chewing over the fat of the week and having a laugh and making our friendship absolutely transparent. And when Jackie's away, or if I'm away, and 
we have a substitute presenter for it, it's never the same. And I've always said, if, if Jackie, for whatever reason, decided that she couldn't do it anymore, I wouldn't seek to carry it on with somebody else because it's never the same as it is with her. Do you feel competitive towards other podcasts? And and that sort of branches into the to a wider sort of enveloping question, which is, are you competitive? I don't really see it as competitive with other broadcast other podcasts. I mean, we did a thing when Alistair. Campbell and Roy Stewart started their Rest is Politics podcast, which actually Alistair asked me to do with it. And I, I said, no, because I couldn't imagine saying to Jackie, and by the way, I'm deserting you for Alistair Campbell. Um, when they started that, I mean, we we had a bit of a thing on the podcast where it's sort of, oh, Johnny come lately, and they're just copying us and all the rest of it. But it was very tongue in cheek. Um, am I competitive? To an extent, I think you have to be. It's It's part of... I mean, life is competitive, isn't it? I mean, any, anything you do, there is an element of competition to it. You want to be better than other people. I've, when I've won awards, I mean, I do get pleasure out of that, particularly when they're awarded by your your peers, because you think, well, I must I must be doing something right. So I, I'd be utterly lying if I said I wasn't competitive. What would you say drives you in your professional life? I, I always want to do something that I enjoy, but I also want to. I've always had a thing about not having money and I, I don't come from a rich background. I mean, people think, well, your father owned a farm, so you, you can't be that badly off. Well, if you own a small farm in this country, believe me, that is never, your only wealth is in the land and you can only realize that asset if you sell it. When I was growing up, we didn't go on holidays. Um, I'm not going to say that we never had change out of a farthing and we had a perfectly lovely life. But we weren't rich. And I've never been in a position where, because I always think that you define rich by thinking, well, you can just go out and spend any money without even thinking about it. And I've never been in that position. And even now, when I do earn a, a good salary or, or good money from LBC, um, I, I don't live, I don't think, an extravagant lifestyle. Everybody has their own little luxuries. My car is my luxury, I, I suppose. I like to have a nice car. So I am I am motivated by earning money, um, but that that's not the sole thing. Um, my sort of happiness, I suppose, is is just as if not more important. I want to do things that I enjoy doing, and I've always thought that the moment I stop enjoying doing my radio show, I will know that's the time to go. And I wasn't expecting to still be there 13 years on, uh, but I am. And I think it must be because I still enjoy what I'm doing. I, I always I always think that when my contract comes to an end, that will be it. There's only been, I think, two occasions in the whole time when I thought, when I've been absolutely 100% confident that they would want to renew it. Um, but I've always thought, well, I, I will know. And I remember saying to James Rear, my boss once, I said, you need to tell me if you think my voice is sounding old, because I think the your your voice is, ought to be as a radio presenter your biggest asset. And in some ways, I've never been confident that I have a good radio voice. And I remember in my early years at LBC, um, Louise Burt, who's the deputy managing editor, she would try and instill much more pace into my voice, particularly when I was doing drive time. And she would stand behind the glass in the gallery and before just before i said my first words she would shout into my ears big bollocks and that sort of somehow just made my voice pacier and more animated and i think that has had an effect 
because I've always thought I've got quite a soporific voice that might, might be suited to late night radio much more than daytime in some ways. Um, so, uh, and I think I've got a voice. I would love to have Nick Ferrari's voice. Good morning. <laughs> because he's, he's automatically got pace. And I always remember when I used to deputise for him doing breakfast, if he was ever on holiday, which wasn't very often, um, I really had to be conscious of, I mean, not trying to imitate him, but being much more pacier than I ever was on the evening show. You mentioned your childhood and your father being a farmer. How do you look back at your early years now? I think I had a perfect childhood. Two loving parents, a nice home, lovely lifestyle, growing up on a farm, what could be nicer? Living in a very rural village in North Essex, a very wide family, all from all with farming backgrounds, on both sides of my, the family, my father's and, and my mother's. Um, I, I, I can't actually think of anything bad about my childhood. My parents, what I will always be grateful for is that they never put pressure on me to take over the family farm because that was the case for all of my cousins. And I knew from a fairly early age that I did not want to be a farmer. But I think if I'd been born 10 years before I was, I would have been. There wouldn't have been the opportunities not to be. And I, I was the first one to go to university and I studied German. But right up until probably the age of 12 or 13, I had to go through the pretense of when people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'd ha I felt I had to say a farmer. But it became quite clear that I, mean, I had no aptitude to farming at all. I, I can't do anything mechanical, whereas my father could mend anything. Um, I was absolutely hopeless. I still can't change a plug. Um, so I, And it wasn't a big enough farm for my father and I to get an income from it anyway. And I think certainly my mother recognised that. My father always viewed farming as a vocation, not a business. And that used to frustrate the hell out of me because he would buy things, which I thought, what did you spend money on that for? And my mother always did the accounts and she always found that quite frustrating that he he would spend money like water. But yeah, so I I knew that I didn't want to go into farming, even though I did a, I helped out with the farm quite a lot. I used to love driving the combine harvester. I used to drive the combine harvester unsupervised at the age of eight. Can you imagine doing that nowadays? The 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 consequences that, that there would be. Um, and all my friends in the village, they would come up and play on the farm. Again, that wouldn't be allowed now. And I, I like to think that we actually, I mean, it, Hillary Clinton always say it takes a village. Well, it really did. And there would sometimes be 20 of my friends from the village, boys and girls, coming up to the farm at harvest time. Um, they would come up the fields on the back of the trailer, like the, the corn trailer with the corn almost up to the brim and them sitting on the top of it. My dad would be driving the tractor, pulling the trailer up the road. And again, health and safety executive would go mental now. And I just feel really sorry for kids nowadays who don't have those kind of opportunities that people in my village did. And when I when I go back there, because we, we still own the farm, and I sort of go down the pub and see all my friends from school days, they will always, one of them will always say, oh, we had the most amazing childhood, and it was thanks to your dad. It's very interesting the, how you describe your childhood as being such a happy childhood because you turned 60 last year and for, I imagine, quite a few men of your age who grew up gay in the time that, that you grew up, that childhood would, for that reason, have been quite difficult in those days in some ways, but not for you. Um, 
No. I knew that I was different from a very early age, probably seven or eight. I'm not sure I would have realised I was gay necessarily, but I knew from certainly early teenage years that I was, but there was no opportunity, how can I put this, to act on it in any way. Um, I can remember, <laughs> uh, how old would I have been? 15, 16, I can remember sort of having a slight fumble, but it wasn't reciprocated. And that kind of put me off. <laughs> um, and I didn't act on it until I was 28. And but even at university, I, I kind of knew I had lots of girlfriends. And I mean it sounds weird, and I had genuine feelings for them. It wasn't me trying to sort of use them to mask me being gay. Um I mean, there was, I suppose, some sort of conformity about it, but I had, I did have genuine feelings. And uh, as I say, if I'd been born 10 years before I was, I probably would have been married with children and been one of those sort of slightly tragic figures who um, probably strayed on the side. And that's how it was in those days. Uh and I, there's one that I could I could have easily married. I mean, I'm very glad I didn't from her point of view, because as you know, I'm sure you've done phone-ins on this. Um, if you do a phone-in on women finding out that their husbands are gay, your switchboard fills up within five minutes. I mean, it does happen the other way around as well, I should say. Um, so I'm glad that I was born when I was, because I think even, I mean, homosexuality wasn't legalised until I was five. And... I think the changes that we've experienced over the years with the change in the age of consent, with gay adoption being allowed, with civil partnerships, equal marriage, it's been quite a journey. And um, I, I felt coming from the very conservative with the small C background that I did, it was very difficult for me to be out about being gay. Now, I wish I had been a lot earlier than I was, but I didn't tell my parents until I was 40. Um, and that was not easy. So that didn't impact on my childhood happiness whatsoever. I, I think it impacted more in my 20s and 30s, where um, if I had acted on it before I did, I think that would have made my private life a lot happier. I think in my 30s, when I had acted on it, I how can I put this made up for lost time and became a bit of a slut? <laughs> Um, but then I, I've met my partner, John, who I, for some reason I never call my husband. He calls me his husband, but I never call him my husband. There's, I'm sure there's some deep psych psychological reason for that. We've been together for 27 years. And as you, you know me well enough, Matt, to know that I can be quite a fiery character from time to time. We've never actually had a full-blown blazing row, which I still find incredible 27 years on. And... We are very, very different personalities, have very, very different interests. The only mutual interests we have are dogs and cars, but somehow it works. You say that you, you don't call John your husband, but you are actually husband and husband, aren't you? Because yeah. you converted your civil partnership into marriage. Yeah. And I, I wonder in terms of significance to you as a gay man, which was the the more significant? Was it when, when you became civilly partnered or was it when yes. you became husband and husband or man and husband no, it, it, it was um civil partnership which we did in june 2008 at wadhurst castle how gay is that um and 
when the legislation came in where you could, well, I always say upgrade, but I'm told I should say convert. We thought about doing a sort of big do again, but then thought, well, why? Because we've always regarded ourselves as married, even though the phrase is civil partnership. To us, that was a marriage. So we didn't do a big, we didn't make a big song and dance out of it. We went down to Norwich Registry Office and signed the forms on top of a photocopier. How romantic is that? And then just went out for dinner with about a dozen friends at a pub in the evening, and, and that was it. But it didn't, to us, it didn't really signify anything different. I'm curious about your relationship with your parents, because you said it was difficult to come out to them when you were 40. I remember reading, possibly on social media, memories that you posted of your mother, perhaps on an anniversary of, his, of her death, I'm not sure. But my sense was that you were that she was a hugely important figure in your life and that you cared for her and loved her very, very much indeed. And is, is that, is that, have I got that right? And is that also true? Was that also true of your, of your father? Well, yes, it was true for both of them, but also my grandmother who had a massive influence on my life. In fact, without her, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today doing what we're doing because she was, she was born in 1894 and she was one of 12 children in a little village in Cambridgeshire, only four four miles from where I grew up. And she was the first in her family to escape the sort of um, farming rural background. And she moved to London as a teenager and worked for the post office. And I think, I'm pretty sure, I remember her saying that she worked at Wembley Stadium when it opened in 1923. And she was always quite a regal figure she was known as the duchess by my one of my my grandfather who um died when i was two and we used to have terrible fights when i was sort of eight nine ten going up to 14 i suppose terrible arguments and I, i can't remember what over and i would invariably after one of these arguments feel incredibly guilty even if it was not necessarily my fault And I'd always write her a little note of apology and put it under her bedroom door because she lived with us. Um, And she was the one that when I came home one day and said, oh, they want me to learn German. And why would I want to learn German? She said, well, you should do it. It's an opportunity. If you don't like it, you can give it up. And if I hadn't learned German, I wouldn't have gone to UEA. I wouldn't have got involved in politics. I wouldn't have then got involved in the media and I wouldn't be sitting here today. So she had a huge impact. She got me involved, interested in politics. I, I, probably people are bored with this story, but the day Margaret Thatcher was elected leader of the Conservative Party, I was 12 years old. She was ill in bed. And I remember running upstairs to tell her, and she burst into tears. And she later said to me, well, I never thought that a woman could lead a political party. And she lived to see her become prime minister, but died six months afterwards. Um, so she had a huge effect. And my mother was just, and I know people always say this about their mothers, but it really was the case with my mother that she was one of the kindest, most caring people you could ever hope to meet. I, I can't really think of anyone that she had said anything bad about. And if I did or anybody else did, she would always sort of admonish us. And she she was the glue that held everything together, really. And that that was why I didn't want to tell her I was gay, because I, I knew that she would find it difficult. She she didn't really, in terms of sort of the permissive society, that completely passed her by. And my sisters and I used to always sort of howl with laughter at some of the words that she one day she said, what's a wanker? <laughs> and she she was just 
very, very innocent. And when I told them both, my, my dad was always really good in a sort of family crisis. But I remember this empty look in my mother's eyes when I told them. And and I sort of said about George, I know he's your friend. And I said, yes, but it's kind of more than that. And then eventually the penny dropped and she just went completely silent for the rest of the conversation. And when I left the house the next, no, that evening, I remember saying to my sister, who I had also told that day, well, I suppose that went as well as it could. And she said, you have no idea. And the next morning, she phoned me up and she told me that my mother said she wished she'd never woken up. And A, I don't know why she felt the need to share that with me, <laughs> but it was very, very upsetting. And they knew John. I mean, John had come to stay quite often. They got really well with him and still did. And I mean, that was the good thing and that they didn't, nothing changed in the sense that he was still coming to stay at the house um, and they, they came to the civil partnership. I think probably my mother wished she'd been anywhere else in the world that day. Um, but it, it was never mentioned again. And that's kind of how we British cope with these things, I suppose, isn't it? How do you look back at your time as a Conservative Party candidate? So you ran for election in 2005, lost, I think, to the incumbent Liberal Democrat, Norman Lamb. Yeah. Well, lost very badly. <laughs> Um, well, you got over 20,000 votes yourself, didn't you? Yeah, but he got 31. Um, Not too bad. I I had wanted to run for Parliament for a long time. And that what, what I've learned is that timing is everything in these things. And I was, I mean, it was at the height of Tony Blair. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I thought I knew better than people that were telling me not to go for that seat. It had a very small Liberal Democrat majority. It, I knew the seat well. It was actually where my mother came from. Um, and I thought I knew better. But Chris Renard, who was in fa in charge of Liberal Democrat campaigns at that time, who I knew a bit, he said to me, do not go for North Norfolk because Norman Lau will get a 10,000 majority. And he was right. As I've told him many times since, I should have taken his advice. And I was getting interviews in every seat I, I applied for. And I was... Um, I was, I think, seen as one of the sort of rising stars. And I was often written up in articles saying, well, who's going to be in the cabinet in 10 years' time? And my name would invariably appear. That, I think, went to my head a little bit. Um, but I should have gone for safer, safe Conservative seats. And I would have got one in the end. If I'd persisted with it, I would have got one. But that was the seat I wanted. And I had an absolute ball. I loved virtually every minute of it. I was there for 18 months. Um, and I fought a very, very high-profile campaign. And Norman Lamb has admitted to me since that he was really worried. But, of course, when you turn a majority of 463 into one of 10,600, then that does not look good on the CV. So I knew I knew from the night of the election result, which I, I was expecting to lose, but not not by that much, I knew that, that it would make it difficult to then do it again. And I had to take time out from selections for the 2010 campaign uh, because I'd started Total Politics and Bikeback Publishing. And by the time I got back into it, there weren't that many seats left. And I nearly got Bracknell, which would have suited me down to the ground in many ways. 
but once that didn't happen and then the last one i went for was east surrey which sam guimar got and i it was a disaster i made a terrible speech i just decided that was it um and i've had one or two flirtations since then because it never the virus never quite leaves you when alan hazelhurst stood down in saffron walden in 2017 i went through 24 hours of agony thinking this is my chance i I, if I go for this, I think I would get the selection. Um, but then people said to me, yeah, but why would you give up a really well-paid job that you absolutely love? So in the end, I did the time on the thing and wrote down the pros and cons and came up with four pros and 15 cons. And that, that was that was a decision made. But there will always be part of me that regrets not having done it because I look at people in the cabinet now, who a lot of whom are my contemporaries, and... I'd like to think that I could have done a better job than some people over the last few years, but we will never know. Following on from that last comment, I have to ask you whether you still consider yourself a Conservative. Do you still see yourself as a Tory? Well, I ask myself that quite often as well, and certainly have done over the last two or three years. The answer is I don't know. I, I'm, I, I almost feel political homeless, politically homeless, like a lot of the electorate at the moment, where I still instinctively feel... That I'm a conservative, but uh, and it's, I always think it's a bit lazy to say, oh, well, the Conservative Party's moved away from me. But in a way, it has. I think doing the job on the radio that I've done has made me less right wing on a lot of social issues than I might otherwise have been. Because when you hear people's stories, you, you can make a theoretical argument for the bedroom tax. But when you when you understand how it's affecting individual people, you know that it isn't working. Universal credit, exactly the same. So... I think I, I, my social instincts I would regard as more liberal than conservative now. Economically, I'm still as Thatcherite as I ever was, but with the recognition that we're in 2023 now, not 1983, and you can't you can't just do what Jeremy Corbyn does and um, maintain exactly the same political opinions that you had 40 years ago. It just doesn't work. So I would still instinctively say that my ideal economy would be one where the state played a very small part in it but given what happened with covid and given other things at the moment can i really make an argument for a small state now no i can't i can in the long term but i recognize that the government has got a role to play in getting everything back on track and it's ridiculous to deny that so I think, again, you have to separate the theory from the practice. One of the things that stands out about you to me, Ian, is your ability to forge friendships and acquaintances across the aisle, as it were. You do not limit yourself to friendships with people who agree with you politically. How important is that? How difficult can it be? And would you draw the line with some people? I have never understood the attitude that you can only be friends with people that you agree with. <laughs> I a little bit of me died. You remember that Labour MP, what was her name, um, where she said, oh, I could never be friends with the Tory. And I'm thinking, you have no idea how Parliament works, do you? Because if you want to get a private member's bill, for example, you have to get a cross-party coalition. You have to get on with the other side. And to think that you can go through your whole life not even attempting to understand why people believe what they do or to think that you couldn't actually have a relationship with somebody who was from a, a different political party. I just, I just don't understand that. Never have been able to. And I think the, my relationship with Jackie Smith, I think some people find weird. 
um, in that we get on like a house on fire. I said terrible things about her on my blog back in the day. Well, when um, she was Labour Home Secretary. Yeah. And and then I interviewed after she left Parliament, I did a very long form interview with her. One of these things where effectively transcribed interviews where every word is transcribed. And you just tie it up to make, make it read well. And I was I think we talked for about three hours and we just got on. And that's what that's what happens in normal life. You either get on with someone or you don't. And I then got her on Sky News. We used to do pay-per-views together. And she did a few programs on LBC, one or two with me. And we have just become the best of friends. And why not? And okay, she's right-wing Labour. I'm sort of probably le- a bit leftish conservative. So maybe maybe we, we, we cross over a bit more than most people from different political parties. But she's much more tribal than I am. But we we just we have the same sense of humor. We we just get on well, and um, I as I say I don't understand people who like, they miss out on a hell of a lot by having such small minds. Final question, Ian. So you were a nursing assistant in Germany on your year off, and I wonder whether you found any overlap between your experiences then and your experience as a radio host, because I think it's clear from talking to you and clear from listening to you that empathy is a big part of what you do. Really listening to people, trying to understand them and perhaps their suffering is actually a vastly important part of what you do. Well, I I was, well, you say a nursing assistant, that is right, but I think nowadays you would probably say more like hospital porter, but I did. I worked in the swimming pool of a Stoke Mandeville type hospital. It's a private hospital in a place called Bad Wildungen in, in Germany, which I'd visited twice on school exchanges. And that was, it was very unusual for people to do gap years in 1980. And I wanted to do it because I wanted to really improve my German before I went to university. And it, it worked wonders. I mean, I was more or less fluent by the time I went there and all of my contemporaries weren't. So I sort of sailed through the first year. But I remember when I got the job, it was quite a culture shock because I'd never been away from home before. I'd certainly never been in a hospital. And I was based in the swimming pool area, so I had to bring patients down from the wards for sort of therapy in the swimming pool. And there was a sauna, which I'd never even seen a sauna before. And I remember, and you you had people who'd been in motorbike accidents, you had had people who had got spinal deformities, and they were what we called the halo patients, where they literally had metal halos screwed into their heads uh, with a sort of on a... I don't know how to describe it. It's basically all designed to keep to straighten their spines out. And for the first two or three days, I remember walking around being, I mean, in horror and feeling really sorry for everyone. And then one of the people I was working with, I was sort of saying to this, oh, it's absolutely terrible, isn't it? And they said, you've got to stop feeling sorry for them. You've got to treat them like normal people because that's what they are. And a penny dropped somehow. And I didn't mean to say you wouldn't be have empathy, but and I think anybody who's listened to this who works in the NHS will understand this, that you can't take the burden of everybody's pain onto your own shoulders. You, you, there has to be a, a degree of distance. Now, how does that work on radio? Um, again, in theory, y- you should keep a bit of distance and it's not right to sort of emote too much on the radio. And but often when when you do find yourself tearing up, and I do that, I, I mean, that happens to me quite regularly. 
I, I've, I've got over being embarrassed by it because I've always been like that. If there's a emotional advert on television that I tear up, I tear up at sort of Emmerdale, <laughs> things like that. My mother was exactly the same. I get it from her. And I remember once when I, I can't remember what the circumstances were, but I remember sort of slightly having a moment. And my producer, Matt, at the, at the time, is now Andrew Miles' producer, he said, did you do that on purpose? I said, what do you think I am? I'm not some kind of monster. I don't sort of put it on. I mean, in some ways, um, it, it would be better if I didn't ever do it. But what you realise is that the rest of the audience, or a lot of the rest of the audience, are doing exactly the same as you. So I, I've I've sort of stopped feeling that I shouldn't do that. And I think it's much better to be obviously empathetic than just to be seen as some sort of cold-hearted radio presenter who just sort of take, takes the calls, listens, and then sort of goes on to the next one. Um, it, it does educate you as well, because no matter how much you might think you live a normal life in the real world, and I, I think I do, um, there are always people who live very different lives to you that you can learn from about that, their own circumstances. And sometimes, I mean, I always try to, if somebody's phoning in in a great deal of distress, I'll, I'll try to think of a way of helping them. But there are sometimes, and I remember recently somebody phoned in and I genuinely didn't know what to say to them. And I had to say, I don't know what to say to you. Because you, your instinct is to try and help somebody through a bad time. And there have been times when, I mean, I've launched sort of financial uh, campaigns for, for to help people sometimes. You don't do that very often, but... Um, and there are times when somebody's obviously in dire straits where you the phone that you end the phone call and i mean i have on a few occasions sent people money because i just thought it was the right thing to do and i'm sure there are all sorts of rules as to why i mean i can't remember the last time i did it but there, i'm sure there must be rules that sort of so you shouldn't do that but should you just walk on by? Should you just sort of leave it to somebody else? If you can, if you are in a position to help, um, I don't think so. Ian Dale, it's been absolutely fascinating listening to your 20 answers to my 20 questions because we talked about some challenging things. I just want to give out the number to the Samaritans, 116123. That's 116123. Thank you so much for answering my questions, Ian. Sorry I've given such long answers. <laughs> no, I'm very glad you did. Cheers, Matt.